Hey, Cole. What does a taxidermy dog, a sex psychic, and Nazi spies have in common? A sex psychic? What? Yeah. Well, they're all in this week's movie, so buckle up and get ready for the 1989 film Puppet Master. I was not ready. All right, let's go. <laughs> Welcome back to Second to Die, a horror fiction podcast. We talk about lots of things. And sometimes horror, but apparently also sex psychics. Yeah, we do talk about sex psychics. And honestly, it's going to be a lot today because I wouldn't say that it's an integral part of this plot, but it is like there's a lot of it in this movie. I mean, it's the late 80s, so you got to spice things up a little bit. <laughs> So, okay, let me just do my usual shtick here and say that, obviously, like I said, I'm talking about Puppet Master, the original from 1989, a very iconic movie. It has developed a huge following. It is actually quite an enjoyable experience. Some of it is just so out there. It reminds me a little bit of some of the books you've read in a, in a way. Because obviously what some people don't realize, I think, about Puppet Master, especially if they haven't seen it, I think it's it's recognizable. Like when you see the puppets, a lot of people can kind of recognize them. Also, there have literally been um, 14 movies in the series, kind of. I've literally never heard of this franchise. Well, that's because you don't follow film at all. And because you live under a rock. Made of books. With me. Yes, Exactly. But I think a lot, well, so I think a lot of people who actually do like films, especially horror films, know of the Puppet Master series. Even if they don't watch them, I think that they kind of like are like, oh, yeah, it's about puppets. But let me tell you, puppets are like the least of this movie's amazingness. And obviously, I'll just go ahead and say right now, I actually really do like this movie. There are some dumb parts to it, but in general, it's really enjoyable. It is a relatively quick watch, and there some of the parts in it are just so over the top. I mean, this movie literally has everything. So, okay. It was directed by David Schmoller. I think that's how you say it. That's cool. When we get to the author of my book, I will make it look like you said that so eloquently. <laughs> well, because the way that his name is spelled, I'm assuming it's German, and it probably is o umlaut, so it's probably Schmuller, but like the American version wouldn't be Schmoller. Anyways. Written by Charles Band and Kenneth J. Hall. So I'll go over my usual little factoids. The movie never got a theatrical release. They decided to do it just direct to... I was going to say direct to DVD, but there were no DVDs in 89. So like <laughs> direct, direct to, to VHS. VHS. Yes. Because they just thought that they would make more money if it was direct to video. I'm assuming there's some cost involved in theaters. But it did do okay, and develop this like huge cult following. So it spawned 10 sequels, one crossover film, a reboot in 2019 titled <laughs> Puppet Master, The Littlest Reich. And <laughs> oh, boy. I told you there were Nazis. <laughs> okay. Well, okay, but yeah, 2019, Little Hitler. And then... Like Hitler sperm. Yes. And then the latest thing was a spinoff called Blade, The Iron Cross, which released in June of 2020. So, yeah, I would have thought that was just one of the Blade movies. 
It's not one of the played movies. This is so confusing. Well, so all the puppets have names. And one of the most recognizable puppets who... You just look like you're just not enjoying this, but you will. Oh, no, I'm enjoying it. I'm just... it the, The confusion. So one of the puppets is named Blade because he has a knife that comes out of his hand. That's so useful. Mm-hmm. So, 14 films in total this spawned. Lord Christ in heaven. Yeah. Well, and because I thought you would enjoy it, I the synopsis for Blade the Iron Cross is really short, so I decided I would read it to you. <laughs> Just so you can see. This movie, obviously, I'm not going to tell you the synopsis because I'm going to tell you what happens in the entire movie. But, okay. So, Blade the Iron Cross. In 1945, a psychic war journalist gains a telekinetic link to a murderous puppet and uses its help to sabotage a top-secret Nazi experiment that involves using a death ray to transform people into zombies. Oh, boy. (laughs) Doesn't it sound so good? And uh, so let me just say this, because obviously, like, these movies kind of involve Nazis. This one kind of does. And I sort of complained when I did 31 about not liking Nazi imagery. Let me clarify why this is not in contradiction because i okay i have not seen the littlest reich or any of the other puppet master movies but i do not mind using nazis as a storytelling device or having them involved especially when it's an older movie like from the 80s you know what i don't like is when people use things like swastikas as a visual shock like the way that 31 did it. And that's a very different thing. Yeah. So, I mean, you can use Nazis in your stories all you want, especially if it's time appropriate, like in the time period. But I don't think that like throwing a Hitler speech in the background to make things sound scarier is creative. That's all. Anyway. That's all. Yes. Okay. So a little bit more. The movies. So this movie originally was just a horror fantasy kind of a movie. They got a little bit of a campiness to them, and The Littlest Reich, which is the reboot of it, is actually marketed as a comedy horror and is more of like in the comedy horror genre. And I watched, I was just curious about it, and I was curious about the fact that they did change that. So I watched the trailer for The Littlest Reich, and I will say that there is a line in it where the main guy says, why would anyone create a Nazi puppet? And then the response is, they're little, they're fast. If Anne Frank was hiding in an attic, a puppet could find her. What the fuck? <laughs> yeah, so it's, I guess, I don't know, racy horror. I'm not, like, huge in Anne Frank jokes, but... That's, like, how at the library my coworker found the book that is basically, like, Anne Frank fan fiction. Yeah, but that, I feel like, is really disrespectful. Yeah, but it was written by, like, a real big author, too. Was it J.K. Rowling? We don't talk about she who must not be respected in this house. Was the end of it where Anne Frank was really a man in women's clothing and was killing everybody? Oh, boy. No, I mean, if you like J.K. Rowling, more power to you. She's doing everything in her power to not make that happen, though. Okay. Except not more power to you. She's a turf and garbage. Yeah. I mean, whatever. Okay. So that's kind of my little thing about it. It's big, it's cult, it's kind of campy. People like it. All right, so I will go over 
the cast a little bit and then also the puppets real quick. There's not a lot of people in this, so I'll just kind of talk about them a little. There are... So, the okay. I'll just say this. The premise of this, basically, is that there's these group of psychic friends that all hear that their one psychic friend died. So, they're going to go to visit him in California to, like, not really to pay their respects, even though that's kind of, like, the guys it's under. But what they realize is that he had found this old puppet master. They call him a puppet master. They'd found his work notes where he had discovered this, like, Egyptian magic to animate figurines and it was like the secret to eternal life kind of (laughs) oh boy so so they learn he died and they can't believe it so they are like okay we got to go to his funeral it's not really a funeral I don't know his body is just like chilling when they get there in a hotel but I digress anyways oh See, I almost was like, if his body was just showing in a hotel, how did they know he died? But they're psychic. Well, also, he had a wife that they didn't really know about. And the wife, like, I think contacted them, maybe. And she just left the body in a hotel. Well, the wife owns the hotel. It's... No. It's weird. I'll. It, it'll all come together at the end, kind of. As much as a movie like this could. But, okay, mm. so... <laughs> So I'm going to go through the cast, and then I'm also going to tell you a a little bit about their characters so you can kind of understand them, specifically, like, what kind of psychics they are. I, like, really enjoy storylines where people have specific superpowers, so I'm really excited. Yeah, and these are specific superpowers, but some some of them are a little more general than others, but there are definitely some specifics. For instance, so we have Alex Whitaker. He's played by, I believe it's Paul Lamatt. Could be Lee Matt. I don't know. His last name is capital L E capital M A T. I don't know. Anyways, he basically has premonitions through dreams. So he dreams things that are going to happen. Okay. There's Carissa Stamford, played by Catherine O'Reilly. She is the sex psychic. And it's. <laughs> I see my brain is going a million different places that this could go like does she have visions when she climaxes no i'll tell you about how it is it's actually kind of it's kind of good it seems to work sort of like telemetry but not it's not always like that but she basically can like pick up like she could be in a bed and she'll like pick up like a sense of who had sex there before and she knows like like she can experience it so and then not even just a bed like kind of anywhere but she starts. Will people have sex other than in beds, love? Yeah, I know. But I had just set a bed. But she, so she kind of like feels their sex. I guess. That's awkward. And just sounds like an excuse to have a really sexualized character. Y- yes. I'm trying to think if it actually comes into play. Not really. It's really, it's not really plot important. So, okay, then there's Frank Forrester. He is basically Carissa's, I guess they're together, but they also work together. And he's a psychic. He seems to be able to sort of like kind of read minds a little bit, but he doesn't ever use it except in the first part of the movie. So it's kind of weird. Yeah. And then there's Dana Hadley. She's played by an actress named Irene Miracle, which I kind of like her real name more than the character's name. 
but she is a psychic and she kind of has this like she's very witchy they call her the white witch which first of all i'm like she's not the white witch that's stevie nicks you should be ashamed of yourselves but then she is also like this carnival worker psychic where she does like she does a lot of witchcrafty things and then looks in a crystal ball and tells people like their future and stuff like that. And then mm. she also kind of gets premonitions. Okay. She also has a horrifically over exaggerated Southern accent. Yikes. I don't know why this movie. I, I don't know where she's supposed to be from. They all converge into California. Maybe she's from the South, but I don't think so. I don't know. Maybe. Anyways, then, so the guy who died, their friend, his name is Neil Gallagher. He's played by Jimmy Skaggs. And then there's his wife, Megan Gallagher, played by Robin Freights. Okay. And then there's the different puppets. There's Blade that I've already talked about. And then there's one named Pinhead, who he's this, like, giant-bodied, really strong puppet with a very small head. There's Tunneler, who is a puppet with a, like, drill head that spins... I really wanted shovel hands, and I'm disappointed. (laughs) No. There's Jester. His face has three parts, and it rotates, and he just makes different expressions. And then Leech Woman. She literally, like... Oh, my God. Pukes. (laughs) Yeah. She pukes up leeches on people. What? Yeah, like, they come out of her mouth, and not, like, quickly. Like, it's this, like, really slow thing where she's, like... And, like, leeches come out of her mouth. That is 100% not where I saw that going. No. Well, I should get used to that sensation. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> this movie is pretty funny. There's a couple other puppets that have names, but they're not really important. So, I don't know. They, I think they come into play more in the other ones. But, anyways. All right. So, I'm going to start talking a little bit more about the plot of this movie. The plot is super simple. Like, I could probably summarize it in two sentences. But there's a couple scenes I want to go over. Okay, okay. So I'll just say it kind of opens by telling us a little bit about what's going on. And essentially, there's this old puppeteer. It starts in 1939 in this thing called the Bodega Bay Inn in California. There's this old puppeteer, and he's talking to his puppets and being really cute and sweet. And then there are these two Nazi spies that are coming out to get him. Okay. And we know they're Nazis. Yeah. So we know they're Nazis because they are waiting for the elevator in the Bodega Inn, and they speak to each other in German, which is not subtitled. They have very strong American accents in German, but we'll just let that slide. Because most people won't realize that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. True. Most people won't. But basically, one guy's like, and then he's like, like, whatever. So he's like, basically, I don't know why. It's not subtitled, but it basically he's like, so do you understand everything? This is very important. So let's go. Anyway. So before they can get to the puppet master's room he shoots himself in the mouth and dies oh the puppet master yes and he had hidden his puppets away before that you should always hide your puppets away before you have company over it tends to be disconcerting yeah not not us though as people who follow us on instagram will know we have like a slew of like really creepy dolls in this house and the monkey and the monkey there's actually a lot of kind of unsettling things in this the monkey, the cow skull, the dolls, the dark lady altar. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> okay, so that kind of sets the tone for the movie. And then it jumps forward to the modern times, like the late 80s modern times. And 
essentially you kind of realize that all these psychic people, they're kind of like calling each other up and stuff like that. And they're like, okay, we need to get to California ASAPs. That's obviously a huge summarization, but that's what it is. So they basically all end up going to this hotel and they see that their friend Neil Gallagher is dead and it's like his body's in the coffin. Dana, the white witch carnival worker, she like literally takes out a pin and sticks the body with a pin to make sure he's dead, which seems, I don't know, kind of inappropriate. I don't think I would recommend people do that at wakes or anything. Fun fact, and you can cut this if you need to. Uh, the whole, like, the phrase colder than a witch's tit mm-hmm. is because in, like, puritanical times, they believed that a witch had a witch's teat that her familiar fed from, and it was supposed to have no blood circulation and no nerves, so it was cold to the touch. Hmm. Um, and that's the etymology behind cold as a witch's tit. I just thought about it because they used to stick people with pins to try and find their witch's tit. Hmm. I also am very cold very often. That's just a side note. Let's move on. (laughs) You're like a built-in ice pack when it's too warm under the blankets. Yeah. Okay, so they basically all go to this thing. And I'm going to jump forward to the one big scene that I kind of want to talk about, which is this dinner scene. So they all like end up having dinner. They're asking Megan how she knows Neil because they are like, we didn't ever expect him to get married. And Dana is like drinking champagne and talking with her super thick southern accent it really seems to kind of get thicker and thicker as the movie goes on and megan was basically talking about how neil was renovating the hotel and was like doing all this construction work and then one day he just kind of stopped and then got obsessed with his work and then dana says and i'm gonna do this hold on no i'm sorry kind of stopped and got obsessed with his work yeah so he's sorry his work was not construction Oh, so wait, who was renovating the hotel? She was? He was, no. Neil was overseeing the renovations. He After they got married, he just all of a sudden became really interested in helping her renovate the hotel. Okay. okay. And then it seemed almost like he just stopped. And this is, granted, this is the same hotel that the puppet master from the beginning scene killed himself in. And, and so, hid the puppets. And so by his work, you mean his research? His research... He, she says work. She doesn't really say what he did. Okay. But he basically, I think, just disappeared into like a room and kept saying like, I have to work. You're, you're good. I just got confused because they were asking like how they knew each other. And my brain immediately went to like rom-coms and romances. <laughs> and like, he was renovating the hotel. And then he just got really obsessed with his work. And I'm like, I'm confused. No, no, it's nothing like that. And me- so Megan's family owned this hotel and they're very wealthy. And then they met and they got married very quickly. And then he's like, I want to help renovate this hotel. And it's clear, like, what happened is he was looking for these, like, hidden puppets and also, like, the puppet master's notes. And then yeah. when he found them, he he stopped. And actually, the hotel's renovation was stopped partially part way through. And there's part of the hotel that still is, like, under construction. But a lot of it was still fine. But so then Dana, I feel like you all like her character. She's drinking champagne, and then she says in her accent, which I'm going to try to imitate. Oh, boy. Can't wait. (laughs) She goes, Miss Megan, there's a question that's been burning inside of me. Did it ever pass through your sweet, innocent little mind that your husband possibly married you for your money? And then Frank says, 
Wow, a little bit of sauce and Dana becomes quite the cynic, doesn't she? And then Dana says, I am not a cynic, Frank. I prefer to think of myself as a nasty bitch. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, same. That's pretty good. I do like her character quite a bit. Oh, she also has this taxidermy dog, which kind of, I don't know what kind of dog it is. I tried to look it up a little bit. It looks like a pug, but it's got like long hair. It's a small dog. Pekingese. Sure. Let's go with that. They have like smushed faces, but still have lots of hair. I don't know. I had a teacher in middle school who had one named Mr. Waffles. (laughs) Well, this one's name is Leroy. Mr. Waffles is better. Keep going. Yeah, sure. (laughs) Princess Little Piddle. (laughs) So anyway, so Leroy is taxidermied and she walks around and like talks to Leroy and stuff like that too. Yikes. Yeah. Even I'm not that weird. Yes. But I'm close. Yeah, so after this, Dana kind of basically tells Megan that the reason that they all came there is not to really pay their respects to Neil, but because Neil had screwed them all over and that they came to even the score. And then Megan kind of is like, you people are mean. So she leaves and goes outside. Alex follows her and then tells them that they all have these unusual psychic powers Then they were brought together as a group by Neil years ago. They studied these ancient Egyptian methods of giving life to inanimate figures, blah, blah, blah. And Megan is like, okay, that sounds legit. That checks out. (sighs) (laughs) Which, okay, whatever. Megan believes them. Maybe she's just super chill. Like, (laughs) yeah. So anyways, basic. So then after this point, essentially... The puppets start to appear, and then they just start killing people. And so they kill the housekeeper first. I'm on board. Yeah. Well, not with killing the housekeeper first. That's kind of rude. But I'm on board with puppets killing people. That's what I mean. Yeah. So we also do get, probably worth mentioning, because Carissa the sex psychic is a very important character. She obviously has a bathtub scene. Oh, my God. I'm so ready. Well, it's not like crazy good but she has this bathtub scene where she starts like being all like moany and stuff and like like uh frank comes in and is like trying to be all business and like work and she's like she's like oh two women in the navy second world war they spent all weekend in this bathtub and it's like i don't know how useful that power is but it's also like lesbian representation, which is kind of nice for a late 80s movie. That said, sex in a bathtub sounds awful. Yes. I just don't think that there's enough room in a bathtub. Maybe for like two ladies. Even still, I just yeah. feel like I feel like you can be like you can take a bath with somebody. And it can even be, like, intimate, but, like, spending a lot of time in that small space trying to, like, slip and slide around each other. All weekend? Mm Mm-mm. Nope. No, thank you. I'm too old for that shit. It's just like, you know, when people, like, talk about shower sex and stuff. Friction. Water causes friction. It's not even just that. But unless you have a great shower or, like, a dual head shower or something like that, one person is always freezing. Because there's only one person can really stand beneath the the 
water stream. So mm-hmm. it's like the person beneath the stream is like, oh, this is so nice. And the other person is freezing cold. Yeah. No. Mm-mm. Don't understand the mechanics, but it makes for a good scene in a movie. Carry on. <sighs> yeah. I mean, water sex is just... Anyway. So she basically is... I don't know, like rubbing her boobs and stuff and talking about these two lesbians. But then they get out and then there's a scene where she and Frank are like going to have sex in the bed and she's being like a progressive lady and she's on top and she is tying Frank's wrists and is like, you don't get to feel anything unless I say so. And then he puts a blindfold on him. But then she hears something under the bed. So she goes to check. And Tunneler's under the bed, and he, like, drills into her face and kills her. It's like Gerald's game, but with puppets. <laughs> yeah. Well, he doesn't last long enough for for that to really come into play. But the funny thing about it is, so, she dies. And I guess, like, whatever noises she was making as being drilled into the head did not... We're not cause for concern for Frank. Because he's like, Carissa, where are you? What's going on? And then Leech Woman comes up and Leech Woman, the puppet. And these puppets are not like giant puppets. Like, I I mean, Leech Woman is literally like uh, the size of a Barbie doll and starts like kissing on Frank's chest. But like her face doesn't really move because this is the late 80s and it's a puppet. But, like, she starts, like, kissing on on his chest. This, like, Barbie doll-sized thing. And he's like, ooh, Carissa. And it's like, you think that's Carissa? Like, what? <sighs> this movie. Oh, my God. Okay. So then Leech Woman starts to regurgitate up a leech. Of course like, she does. Uh, uh, and what's really funny is, okay, so they are, like, Barbie doll-sized. These leeches are giant-sized leeches. So it, like, stretches her face out so this leech can come out of her mouth. And he, like, puts it on him. And at first he's like, ooh, what are you doing? And then he starts, like, freaking out because he's like, oh, it hurts, it hurts. I actually don't think leeches really hurt. No, they don't. They have a numbing agent in their saliva, if I remember correctly. Yeah, so... It's like whatever. But I do remember, obviously, like growing up in the 80s and 90s, there was this leeches were kind of like this thing that had I think horror movies had used them before too to be like this really dangerous thing. But they're not really like dangerous or really that painful. They're just kind of gross. They're still don't they still kind of sometimes use leeches like. If people like post medical procedures, if people are having like all this swelling and stuff, can't leeches be used to like take some of the blood out and stuff? No idea. I feel like I saw that. Sounds awful Victorian. It wasn't, but it wasn't like to like drain the humors or anything like that. It was like a legitimate thing to, for people that were having like blood problems. I don't know. Maybe that's wrong. Ghosts in the blood. Ghosts in the blood. Anyways. Okay. So then he ends up dying. Obviously. Frank dies. That was a very hungry leech. I can identify. Oh, she can regurgitate more than one. Oh, she awesome. she puts about four on him. So still very hungry leeches. But I think she can. I think she just has like an infinite supply of leeches. I don't know exactly how. I guess I'm not going to question the mysticism of Puppet Master. She's like the fucking Mary Poppins bag of leeches. Well, the weird thing about it is. So, OK, so let's say that we agree that the magic that puppets can come to life is completely legitimate. OK. 
the magic that this puppet can regurgitate an endless supply of leeches seems to be of a different plane. I don't know. It's not quite the same thing to me. But whatever. I don't Your care. belief has to be suspended a certain amount already. Let's just roll with it. I think there's like a gross out factor, and that's mm-hmm. why they wanted to use it. But it is pretty funny. What's her name again? Leech Woman. Oh, okay. They call it in the trailer, they actually refer to her as something else, but in the credits, she's it refers to her as Leech Woman. I think it refers to her as like Miss Leech or something in the trailer. Okay. I was thinking Lady Leeches, but Maybe it is Lady Leech. I don't know. But I do know it's Miss Leech in, in like the wikis and in the whatevers. Miss Leech if you're nasty. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, puppets. Okay, so then we get to Dana being killed. At first, so Dana's walking around with a bottle of champagne in one hand and her taxidermy dog, Leroy, in the other. Which is such a mood. I love it. <laughs> yeah, basically. I've seen you do things very similar to that. Excuse you. <laughs> I talk to myself, not taxidermied animals. Yeah. And the cat. I do talk to the cat a lot. Mm. Carry yeah. on. Sorry. Yeah. Caffeine. <laughs> No, so, okay, so she goes to her room, and Neil's corpse is in her room, but he's, like, still dead. And he moves around the hotel a couple times, so it's, like, whatever. But then, I'll skip a lot of this. Ultimately, she's killed by Blade and Pinhead. It is kind of funny, though, because when Pinhead is, like, Pinhead, like, hurts her leg and, like, I think, like, breaks her ankle or something like that. But she, like, grabs him and, like, throws him around, like, multiple times because, at the end of the day, it they are just puppets. And it's kind of like what I always thought when I had watched, like, the Child's Play movies as a kid. Is I was always like, why don't people just, like, pick him up and, like, throw him or, like, hold him? Like, it's a puppet. They're not that strong. Yeah. But the puppets are kind of, like, immortal. So it's not like she can kill them. But so she's, like, throwing the puppet and stuff like that. But then at the end of the day, she still dies. She gets her throat cut by Blade. It do be like that sometimes. Like you do. Yeah. Okay, so we're kind of nearing the end of the movie because Alex does not die. He's, like, one of the survivors. And essentially what happens is Alex and Megan find the old puppet master's diary, basically stating that the puppets mirror the soul of their master and that with him they were basically harmless because he was this nice old man, but that he worried about what would happen if the wrong people got the puppets because if the wrong people animated the puppets and controlled them, then they would mimic, like, evil souls. Oh, my God. Is it the wife? Was it the wife? It is, unfortunately, not the wife. Oh, fuck. So they go to the dining room, and Neil is there walking around. He's not dead anymore. Bum, bum, bum. Okay, gasp. What gives? So what ended up happening (laughs) is Neil apparently used the same magic to animate the puppets on himself so that when he died, his corpse would be animated. I don't know how this happens because... Whatever. We'll just say that that's okay. <sighs> All right. Yes. <laughs> so he explains that this is the way that he has achieved immortality. And basically said that he kind of plotted this to get the group to all come to see what gives so that he could kill them because they are all psychically linked and they would eventually figure out his secrets that he had discovered using the old puppet master's research. So, he wants to kill everybody. But he could have just turned everyone into puppets. The sex psychic could have been a sex doll. But like a sex doll animated puppet. 
Yeah, he really could have reanimated everybody. I thought that he was going to do that because when they go down and when Neil's walking around, the other three dead members of the group, are their corpses are sitting at the table, but they're dead and they don't come back. I'm just sitting here thinking, well, no, I don't mean like, I mean like he could have reanimated her into like a blow-up doll. Like he had an option to have an army of puppets here. It's weird because it's like he only animated the puppets from the old Puppet Master. Maybe he didn't really know how to do it, but he was just like reusing the puppets. Missed opportunities and lack of ambition. Secondhand puppets. So, okay. This is getting towards the very end. So basically, Neil is a super jerk. And at one point, he's like doing something with Jester. And he ends up throwing Jester down and says he was sick of experimenting on little puppets. And Jester makes this face and their other puppets kind of look at him and they're clearly like, did you just throw our friend? So the puppets are like, not having it. And then they go to try to stop him and Neil punches Megan in the face. (gasps) Yeah. His wife? Yes. And the puppets really do not like this. I'm on the puppet side now. Well, I kind of was the whole time because it's the fun side, but... Yes. So the puppets are like, Mm-mm. we got to do something. So they all team up to kill Neil. Yes. And they do end up killing him yes. together. If you want to see how you can go watch the movie. But the, it's basically just like a puppet team up. And so they kill Neil. And then it's basically like everyone's like, OK, we're happily ever after. And so Alex leaves the hotel and Megan, of course, she owns a hotel, so she stays there. And he's like, see you later. So Alex leaves. Megan is holding Dana's taxidermy dog. And then she starts walking up the stairs of the hotel and like is talking to the dog. And then she like does something and puts the dog down and the dog is alive again and like runs away. So basically, Megan has learned the new secrets of the puppet master. And so now she's, I guess, the new puppet master. And that's how it ends. Okay, I'm on board. I'm on board with that ending. Yeah, it was legit. So the movie is pretty good. I mean, it has a lot. These are my final thoughts. It has a lot of sort of interesting aspects to it in terms of interesting is not the right word. Entertaining aspects to it. It is campy without being a movie deliberately made to be campy, which oftentimes is some of the best camp. Yeah, no, unintentional camp is the funniest camp. Yes, I Yeah, I agree with that. And so it's like when you're watching it, you're just like, oh, my God, this is out there and this is really funny. And so, yeah. So for people who didn't know, like I said, the plot can be summed up in literally like two seconds. But it's funny enough to watch. So I recommend it. Go see Puppet Master. As far as the sequels go, I have no idea. Clearly, they did okay because there's like a thousand of them. So anyways, that's all for me. Now tell me what you're going to talk about. All right, so this week I am deviating a bit from what I normally do. I love horror graphic novels. I like graphic novels in general so much. So I thought I would give one a go, and I am starting off strong because this week I am going to tell you about the 2018 smash hit Infidel. I've not heard of this. I'm looking at it. Actually, I mean, I've seen that book laying around the house. I actually did not know that that was a graphic novel. Yep, it is. Well, I say graphic novel because I'm a librarian. It was a comic miniseries. Yeah, like, I mean, either way. It was like a five-issue 
miniseries of comic books and I just read like the collected edition of it. But in libraries, we catalog that under graphic novels. So to give everyone credit, I am going to just butcher the living fuck out of the writer's name. And I feel so bad. He's Thai American. And I, I'm just going to try. Uh, his name is Pornsack. I'm sorry. What? P-O-R-N-S-A-K. Okay. Yeah. Pornsack sounds right. Pornsack. Pornsack. I'm cool with Pornsack. Pornsack. Uh, Pichet Shodi. Pichet Shodi. Pichet Shodi. I don't know. I mean, I'm looking at it right now on the book and your guess is as good as mine. I'm just going to spell his last name. And I honestly like deeply apologize uh, it is P-I-C-H-E-T-S-H-O-T-E. But he is the writer. It was illustrated by Aaron Campbell. The coloring was done by Jose Villarubia. And the lettering was done by Jeff Powell. Uh, the cover, which was illustrated and colored by the aforementioned, uh, is really impactful. Uh, we have a woman who's wearing a hijab. Presumably she is our main character. And there's this eerie jagged hand that's kind of reaching in. The frame from behind her. What's really cool is if you read the collected edition, there's like an entire part in the back where they talk about the progression of the ideas for the cover and how they were like, we tried this color, but we didn't like this mood. We tried the hand looking like this and we didn't like it. And we, because at first it was very human and then they decided they wanted to make it very monstrous and things like that. I just, I like back matter in books. No, I like that cover quite a bit. It looks very creepy. And I pulled a quick blurb offline because like a lot of comic book collections, there isn't really one printed on the back. Uh, So this is what I found. It does not tell you much at all. A haunted house story for the 21st century. Infidel follows an American Muslim woman and her multiracial neighbors who move into a building haunted by entities that feed off xenophobia. Hmm. This sounds very... Um, metaphorical <laughs> yeah kind of so it's pretty short and sweet so I will obviously have to go into more detail but before I do my quick little note about how I will be trying my best to talk about these themes in the way that I can uh, as is obvious from the blurb there are huge themes of racism and Islamophobia in this story To ignore them because I cannot speak about them personally, I feel like would be very irresponsible, not just for the podcast itself, but also just it seems kind of like a, oh, I don't see color kind of mindset. That being said, I am a white man and I was raised more or less Christian, uh, so I do not have the authority to speak on either of these experiences. Anytime that I make a mention about something being a metaphor for something else, I am fully aware that I am just speaking from someone who has a background in literary analysis. I'm not claiming to have any actual personal understanding of these experiences. And I'm going to do my best to not intentionally make it sound like I'm making that assumption. Basically, that's all to say that I'm not trying to say that I understand the plight of the Muslim American woman. Yeah, which is correct. But I think that you can... I still think that it's good, and honestly, it would probably be really good for other people to read more stories about this, to see the perspective of, you know, people with different experiences than their own. 
Exactly. I mean, that's the whole point of like the movement for reading diverse books that is really big in libraries as it should be. Um, and like Book Riot does a reading challenge every year called the Read Harder Reading Challenge to try and encourage people to kind of break out of reading their own experiences. Yeah, I think, I mean, I just think that, you know, you should try to, I don't know, I think that people should keep an open mind, try to like learn from other people's experiences and not try to, I don't know, like when you, I'm trying to think of the best way to put it. Like, don't co-opt, just kind of take it in and try to understand if yeah. possible. Yeah, exactly. I, I think everyone should read this book, honestly. But I guess my point in all of that is to make sure that everyone listening understands that I'm not trying to speak from any authority that I do not have. That being said, before I move on, uh, if you were to read this collected edition, gentle listener... Tanana Reeve Du, who wrote The Good House, wrote an introduction that is included in it, and it is wonderful, and she talks about reading it through the lens of a woman of color and her experiences as horror is becoming more and more inclusive. I highly encourage that you, at the very least, find some way of reading the introduction, uh, if not read the whole thing. Anyway, that's enough, like, of all of that. On to the story. Basically, I'm going to tell you a lot about the first half, a little bit in the middle, and how it ends. So, spoilers. (laughs) Our story centers around a woman. Her name is spelled A-I-S-H-A. I went to high school with a girl whose name was spelled like that, who just, her name was pronounced Aisha. So, I don't know if it's Aisha or if it's Aisha or... What? I'm going to say Aisha because, like I said, I literally knew someone named that. So I'm just going to go with it. Uh, She is a Muslim woman. She is engaged to a white agnostic man. They and his daughter, with someone else, have just moved in with his mother, Leslie, at her apartment. This is because there was an incident in that apartment building. A man had boxes full of homemade bombs. Though no one knew that that was what was in the boxes. Uh, Stacked in the hallway, and they went off. Ooh. Yes. And it killed everyone on the floor. This happened, like, a few months before the start of the narrative. Uh, Here's the problem, though. The man was Arabic. And so even though his motivations were completely unclear, news outlets immediately ran with it and labeled it a terrorist attack. Yeah, that sounds about right. Uh, So basically, you have a building where a lot of people have moved out and basically the only ones left are the people crazy enough to stay. But everyone is kind of suffering from this trauma influenced by the news blowing things out of proportion. Translation, everyone being really racist. Okay. But because Aisha, our main character, is honestly like super amazing and wonderful, she has convinced Tom, her fiance, to move in with Leslie so that they can provide emotional support because she's struggling so much. Even though Leslie had exhibited some Islamophobic behavior like way, way back when uh, Aisha and Tom first met, it seems like Leslie has grown. And actually there is a scene where Leslie gets like her redemption, basically. Growth. 
So almost immediately after moving in, Aisha is plagued by dreams of these like horrifying, grotesque monsters attacking her. Uh, they're really just super warped and deformed humanoids. And usually they are just spouting epithets, whether they are racist or xenophobic or sexist or Islamophobic. It's just like every single slur imaginable. So it's like the internet. Exactly. Okay. I'm following. As a gamer, you know. Oh, yeah. But eventually she starts to see these monsters as visions while she is waking. And so she suspects at first that it might be a medication that she's on, but she changes her medication and the visions persist. Eventually, they become able to physically affect her, though. They actually force her to push Leslie, so her fiancé's mother, and her fiancé's daughter down the stairwell in the apartment building. It's this really big thing. The creatures are attacking Aisha while she's at her desk. And the daughter comes in and is like, what's going on? Are you okay? And one of the monsters actually like grabs Aisha's wrist and makes her smack the daughter across the face. And so Leslie takes the daughter and they run out into the stairwell. And Aisha's like, help me, help me. And this is the... Um, this is Leslie's moment of redemption where she's like, I will help you. Like, we're going to, I understand something's going on. I don't realize what's going on, but like, I get that something's happening. This isn't you. I will help you. And then Nisha shoves her down the stairs. Okay. Um, But then the creatures throw Aisha down the stairs as well. So we're at about the halfway point and our main character is knocked out of the narrative. Wait, like she dies? She doesn't die, but she is comatose for the remainder of the driving plot. Spoiler alert, she does eventually wake up. There's like an epilogue where she's awake. But the rest of it is Aisha's best friend, whose name is Medina, who is a lapsed Muslim. So she's atheist now. So the rest of the plot is left to Medina and some of their other friends who live in the building, I will sum up a majority of it by saying that the creatures and manifestations in the apartment building start going after them, primarily after Medina, in an argument with one of the neighbors, reveals that she is also, like, of Muslim background, I guess, was raised Muslim. They learned that a man did a whole bunch of occult shit in the building, Uh, Because he believed that people's emotions could physically manifest. And so he did a lot of rituals that caused it to start happening. And unfortunately, in the aftermath of what was labeled a terrorist attack, this means that the manifested creatures were racism. Racism monsters, huh? Yep. And basically at the end, Medina just ends up deciding to bomb out the building so that it's unlivable because she can't figure out a way of reversing it. And so these monsters that are continuing to feed off of people's prejudices are just going to get stronger and more dangerous. And so that's what she does. I mean, that's a pretty big metaphor right there, right? Like, you can't solve racism, so you're just going to, like, try to ignore it, and then it just gets worse. Oh, my gosh. Let me read you a quote. (laughs) Okay. Pausing real fast elevator music while I grab the book. We tricked you. We don't actually have elevator music. Anyway, there's actually a quote that Medina says, where she says, racism's a cancer that never gets cured. The best you get is remission. Yeah, I mean, that's a good quote. To be honest, I'm not even sure you get remission that much these days. I feel like you mostly get 
people just ignoring it and claiming that it doesn't exist anymore or pretending. Which just leads to further problems. Anyway, I honestly thought that this comic was incredible. I feel like it gave it a really choppy and short summary. The thing is, what I didn't realize before I tried to do this and really only realized as I was trying to plan for this episode, graphic novels are tricky because the pacing is so fast. And so there aren't necessarily scenes to dwell on and talk about because a scene is like six frames. Hmm. And so to talk about it at length would be basically to just summarize the entire story. But it's a quick read, so I seriously highly encourage everyone to go to your local library and grab a copy. The author does such a good job of using the grotesque manifestations as a metaphor for how even microaggressions and small acts of systemic racism can build and grow and fester into something much more dangerous. And it's just so good. Sounds good. I mean, it sounds interesting and probably important, especially if people like kind of creepy. What is the creep factor of this? The monsters? No, no, no. That's not what I mean. How creepy is this? Oh, it's very creepy. Okay. Like, there's one time where she's wandering into the kitchen and, like, one comes out of a dark room. And there are times when she's, like, there's another scene where Aisha is with a whole bunch of friends and she's looking at someone as they're talking and a face appears in the plant behind them and then vanishes really quick. And so she, like, freaks Mm. out. But then someone else saw it, too, and, like, that sort of thing. Like, it's very creepy. I mean, because the reason I ask is, I mean, I think themes like this are obviously important. But at the end of the day, if you're not successful at the medium and, like, the genre that you're trying to accomplish, I don't think people are going to like it. But if it is, if the horror elements of it are good and it has this theme, I mean, that sounds really, sounds pretty good to me. I actually had meant to put that in my notes for this, but apparently just thought about it really hard instead of putting the actual sentence that it is really good horror. It's just horror with a message. Yeah, that's pretty good. I mean, that's, I actually like horror a lot like that. Mm -hmm. I've mentioned it, I think, once before, but Night of the Living Dead is very similar to that. Though not as, honestly, definitely not as strong elements, but part of it has this kind of like racial thing to it. In her introduction to Nana Reeve Do, likens it to Get Out. Which I still have not seen, actually. And we need to change that. Oh, and that completely, or that reminds me, I completely forgot. Um, Infidel was, the movie rights were purchased before it was even done running. The movie rights were purchased after issue two came out. Huh. But it was such a whirlwind success that, like, a movie studio already snapped it up. Interesting. I don't know anything about the movie production. I mean, I'm all for more movies having important social messages as well. Like I said, as long as they're successful in their base genre, I think it's great if they can also have a message instead of just being kind of this sort of, I don't know. I don't even know how to say it, like easy to consume stuff. I mean, I like things to have a little bit of a deeper message, depending. I mean, whatever. I don't know what I'm trying to say. Anyway, so needless to say, I loved it. I will give it five out of five jagged hands reaching for you when your back has turned. Uh, It's been a really long time since I've read something that kept me actively thinking about it for days. But this one stuck in my mind so hard that I would just find myself daydreaming about it while I was at work. And I told like everyone 
to read it. If we factor out the fun of how wild the vintage horrors are and how like that is entertaining in and of itself and therefore makes them an unfair comparison and just pare things down to how good an actual book is, this is hands down the best book that I have read for this podcast. Hmm. That's a pretty strong statement. It's also, I think, kind of interesting, too. It's a completely different type. So people who are listening to this that, for instance, may not read a lot of horror, for instance, but they may be super into graphic novels, could give this a try. Exactly. It's like a gateway drug. (laughs) Because I know a lot of people who don't read a lot of just, like, book books, but who are super into, like, graphic novels or manga or things like that. And so this is something that... I don't know. I don't really see a lot of, I guess, never mind. I was going to say, I don't see a lot of horror. There are actually a ton of horror graphic novels, but I don't hear a lot of like my friends talk about reading them. The friends I know that read graphic novels usually read more like Japanese graphic novels. Yeah. I think this is a really good opportunity for crossover appeal. Yeah. And like a joke about like, oh, it's a gateway drug, but like you read something like this and you're like, oh, I'm actually kind of into the horror with, like a social justice message, like let's find other stuff. And then honestly, you'll find like some Tanana Reeve do and stuff like that. But like, I don't know. It's just good. Just go read it. It's so good. I also think it's good to see Muslim representation in horror. You don't get it that much. Anyways, I'm not sure 100% how relevant or appropriate it is but since we always ask it if you were an infidel would you end up being killed honestly probably not for the most part the malevolence that exists in this building targets people of color and muslim people and i am neither of those things uh which is honestly and this is the last one i'll talk about like a glorious metaphor for white privilege (laughs) so yeah probably not would you die in puppet master Hmm. Would lady leeches suck you dry? <laughs> I think my knee-jerk reaction is to be like, the puppets are so small. I don't know how any of these people die. But, I don't know, not that many people die. So I guess, I don't know. I don't really think so. Also, I feel like, so the psychics do kind of see it coming a little bit, but they clearly <laughs> don't see it coming <laughs> enough. <laughs> Yeah, the sex psychic sees it coming all the time. Ha ha ha. But not as often as guys probably think. Oh. Anyway, <laughs> thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate it. Please feel free to rate, review, subscribe. Please say nice things. We have emotions. Uh, you can find us on social media at Second to Die Pod on Instagram and Twitter and on Goodreads if you're curious about what I'm reading next week. You can also email us questions, comments, concerns, corrections. Again, please be nice. We have feelings. <laughs> at uh, seconddiepod at gmail.com. And we will respond because we really appreciate all of you. Well, okay. So, spoiler alert. Max will probably respond because I don't like interacting with people. But I do. And I'm really friendly. He does. And he is. And remember, if you can't be first. You can always be second. To die.